you know, you really can't get the notion of pushing a new deep technology. You know, there are good sides to risks and there are downsides to risks. And softening the career impact of the downside of risk is a huge deal. And I think makes these advanced technologies much more viable and part of a broader ecosystem. Welcome to Light Data Action, the podcast that's on a mission to help you discover new technology trends and tools and better understand how they affect the world around us. Light Data Action is sponsored and produced by Lumen Technologies, the platform for amazing things. I'm your host, Terry Barbonis, and in each episode, I'll speak with industry executives and thought leaders to discuss how these technologies change the way we do business and how you can stay ahead of the innovation. If you're ready, let's join the conversation. Hey, everybody. Last year, Deloitte Consulting released the results of a survey of tech industry leaders in which they asked participants to rank the issues that were barriers to them achieving their data management goals. And there was a clear theme that evolved in that result set. Number one in terms of priorities was collecting and protecting ever larger volumes of data. Number two was the rising cost and complexity of data privacy. And number three was greater consumer and customer awareness of data privacy and the increasing desire for more control. As data continues to be the lifeblood of business, and as more and more organizations look to share and collaborate on data, the need for enhanced data privacy has never been greater. What could we accomplish if the privacy of data was secured while still allowing the ability to collaborate and derive insights from it? How much more effective would, say, cancer research be? In developing new treatments, if researchers could collaborate on patients' genomic data and medical records without the challenges of who can access this restrictive and regulated data. Today, we'll explore this topic with my guest, who is an expert in the field of privacy-enhancing technologies, and he'll share his insights and advice on how organizations can benefit from these. Kurt Roloff is the CTO and co-founder of Duality Technologies which helps companies extract business value from data by enabling innovative, secure computing technologies. Prior to co-founding Duality, Kurt spent almost a decade as a senior scientist at Raytheon BBN Technologies, and he received tenure as an associate professor of computer science at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, where he also was the founding director of their cybersecurity research center. Kurt holds a PhD and MS in electrical engineering from the University of Michigan and a bachelor's of electrical engineering from Georgia Tech. He is a former DARPA principal investigator and the recipient of both DARPA's Young Faculty Award and their director's fellowship. Kurt, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the kind invitation and happy to uh, spend the next little bit of time chatting with you. First of all, when I was prepping for this, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, and in your About section, it says that you sponsor interactions and enable project executions for funding agencies such as DARPA, which I just mentioned, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, Sloan Foundation, National Institute of Healthcare, and so forth. And so I have a two-part question. One, can you explain sponsor interactions and project execution, what it consists of? And why it's important. And then second, how do you get a responsibility like that? That's pretty, uh, that's pretty incredible. Sure. So it gets a little bit in, into my personal history. I was of the generation that was getting my engineering PhD during the 9-11 attacks. You know, as part of you know, that time, it is kind of its own time and place for, for those of us that remember it. I decided that I was going to go into defense industry, you know, post-PhD. Uh, I was very fortunate to get you know, become associated with an organization that at the time was called BBN Technologies, which was not only just a defense contractor, but a defense contractor that most of their business was in support of an organization called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they had a really interesting business model, which was technology development and research technology development as a business, where they would go and 
basically think up interesting projects that would satisfy national security technology needs. And post 9-11, there were a lot of, of very interesting, very important national security technology needs. Uh, pitch the ideas, get funded by Dar- funding from DARPA to put build a team, and then go build stuff to satisfy DARPA's needs and, and the broader DOD and U.S. government. So, you know, early, early on in my career, both through through very good mentors I had at BBN, and just you know, lack of a better term, a sense of purpose associated with the post nine eleven world, I got in a space of you know, working with sponsors, trying to understand what the DoD needs to solve problems, and giving them exactly what they they might need, and, and coming up with innovative solutions. And, and one of the challenges with advanced technology R and D is that someone might know what they need. For example, the old adage is, you know, back in the 1890s, people thought they want faster horses. Well, they didn't actually need faster horses. What they wanted to do was faster vehicles. And so what they needed was cars to solve that. And so this is kind of like one of the part and parcel issues of, of working for someplace like DARPA is, you know, listening that people want horses, but then selling them a car or, or the vision of a car or whatnot. And so I got involved, you know, for the first decade plus of my career, really focusing on advanced technology development with sponsors at, at DARPA, IARPA, and, and other, you know, various organizations that were very, very, very generously supporting projects that I was leading associated with privacy technologies and, and things like that. And it really kind of changed my life in, in terms of just focusing on how we could take advanced technologies and then turn it to solve, you know, really challenging societal problems and getting ahead of the game in those regards. You know, we have an interesting theme that we've seen in the, these podcast episodes that, that we've done since last year in that we find thought leaders that are all attempting to make a positive difference, impact in the world, right? We, we talk about with uh, things like ESG and sustainability your company's talking about doing well doesn't mean you can't do good. And I think one of the things that, you know, in speaking to you before and then looking at your background, I definitely see that thread pulled in terms of somebody who saw a problem, was doing some pretty interesting stuff and said, let's see how we can tackle this, which I think is, you know, I've always loved the, uh, and, and being an innovation myself, I love the ability to be able to identify a technology and then apply it to a challenge that ultimately does more than just solves that problem. It does something greater. I've also heard you say, by the way, when you, when it comes to DARPA, that duality continues to do a lot of work with the organization that you've said something to the effect that it's one of the greatest organization for, for VC or for developing technology that, that we have in the world, Yes, which I think is a kind of a neat statement. I mean, I certainly know some of the things that, and some of the things I don't know for various reasons uh, that may be classified, but it is a pretty amazing organization. You talk about the internet, even Siri, I've read on the iPhone, was originally a DARPA project. Right. Yeah, it's actually amazing. And, you know, kind of the center for this is when I was at BBN, uh, I sat a couple doors down from a gentleman by the name of Ray Thomason, the person who invented email, you know, just by the nature of doing this work for DARPA back in the 70s. I love my connections with DARPA. I love the projects I've had with DARPA. I'm very proud uh, of my engagement with them, and, and I hope to continue it for, for many years to come just because it's so rewarding, and I do feel like I'm doing good in support of this wonderful organization. You know, in particular, we've been doing at Duality, and, and kind of what became the genesis of, of Duality was work on open source privacy technologies, open source software to enable privacy. And for the past decade plus, I, I've been running projects for DARPA that have resulted in the development and continued funding of this open source library called OpenFAG, basically an open source library that enables a certain kind of privacy technology called homomorphic encryption. And it, it's something that we've been able to build a company around at, at Duality. It, it's something where we've been having very, very happy and productive uh, collaborations with Lumen, that, that's been a lot of fun to work with, uh, working with some of the leading academics in the world, such as at MIT and, and Berkeley and UCSD and many other places, and also with uh, a number of other you know, U.S. government organizations, such as U.S. Navy and NIH and several others, you know, to enabling privacy-protected communication, enabling 
privacy protected cancer research, you know, helping the fight against financial fraud and a number of matters that really came out of the visionary work being done at DARPA to really kind of get us bootstrapped and in, in, in going with this technology to show that it's actually feasible and practical for real world use cases. Yeah. And, and the other thing you talked about, you talked about being open. I think the other things that is a seems to be a bit of a religion, especially with cryptography and cryptographers, is this idea of opening their research up to both peer review, auditing, and so forth. And so I think the combination of duality using open source technologies and then the uh, standardization organization, I was looking at it earlier, hestandardization.org, I believe is the URL, is a who's who of participants. I mean, some of the most prestigious companies, academic organizations, and individuals kind of getting together again, this idea of doing good and collaborating. There's a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say it's unique, but with cryptography in general, there seems to be a real push always to be open. Is that a is that an accurate depiction? It is. I think it's the, the best cryptography needs to be open. And this is something that I take as a bit of an article of faith in that, you know, there's almost like this three-legged stool that we need to sit on or at least stand on when it comes to, to privacy technologies in general. One is have the protocols go through open academic style review, peer review, which is the only things that we use in, in our open source libraries, open FHE and, and in duality products, that we have open source implementation uh, of the cryptography. One, because one, it helps build community and all the other good kind of good sense like that but it helps engender trust in the actual software and implementation in and of itself. And we love that we, we have, you know, our customers and, and, you know, big banks actually typically have engineers go and look at our code. And it's actually wonderful to actually have them come back and say, yeah, this is, you know, this is good, but you know, you had a typo in the comments. And it's like, okay, fine, fix that. Makes you feel like they actually know what they're doing. And, and you know, the only bugs that they're finding are in comments, which is like the best thing in the world. And then, you know, pushing forward international standards which is a major aspect of what we do because it's a community of, of a different sense in that in, in the notion of standards and particularly standards associated with collaboration is to drive uh, interoperability and to uh, drive organizations to, to work together and collaborate in particular. You know, with privacy technologies, there has been a you know, happily a, a, a very big push among some of the largest organizations in the world whether it's like the Googles or the MasterCards or, you know, various government entities like NIH and CDC or, or you know, e even, you know, companies like, like Mercedes-Benz is, is showing up to some of these, these meetings. And we're having them at the UN building in Geneva in particular, as an example, in right. addition to Microsoft and others and Intel. And, and these organizations, you know, generally see that they're sitting on piles and piles and piles of, of highly, highly valuable data that they can't really share and, and, and collaborate on with potential partners because of liability, legal liability and privacy concerns. And you know, one of the premises of, of a founding of a company like Duality and, and the DARPA work that went into OpenFHE is the premise that data is extremely valuable, but it, it can be extremely dangerous if not treated properly according to, to regulation and standard to get value from the, from the data, but only in ways that protect privacy and security and all the other things that, that we all should be very, very mindful of as we go. So let me ask you this. When you look at, I mean, this data that we're talking about in and of itself, with the type of data it is, especially if it's healthcare and regulated and so forth, that's a challenge in and of itself in trying to figure out how to collaborate on that without giving away anything to somebody who, who needs to get a result out of it, but doesn't necessarily need to know the details. If you add on top of that, the ongoing cyber threats, I've heard you talk about advanced persistent threats. We certainly deal with it from a Lumen perspective with you know our cybersecurity and rapid response practice and so forth. In your opinion, what's the state of data security in general today? Putting aside what duality is doing and so forth, What's your lens on it? Are we getting better at it or are we really just still struggling a little bit despite the efforts of duality, other private organizations, the public sector, and so forth? No, that's a great question. I think in general, as a community, 
a society, we have gotten quite a bit better about data protection in general. I think some of that is driven by organizations where there were hacks like the TGX hack that happened about a decade ago. There was Home Depot. There were a lot of, you know, it wasn't just spy versus spy government stuff going on. It was very public in your face, like, you know, people that you knew, including yourself, that were getting impacted by, by some of these hacks on a regular basis. And it really drove organizations where, you know, even CEOs were getting fired, you know, because of these data hacks and, and things like that, that drove home the point that, yeah, data is great and you can make profit off of data, but it's a heck of a liability, you know, to the point where the CEO is going to lose his job, you know, if he doesn't do it, do it well, uh, let alone the CISO or IT folks that might kind of fall on their sword for right or wrong reasons. So there, there has been this push and there has been this recognition of the, you know, defense in depth and, and, and using cryptography tools to protect data. But one of the challenges of current techniques, current best practices to do this has then that data access is extremely limited. In particular, the use of encryption technologies that don't allow collaboration on the data, the creation of data silos and data that's shared only under very restrictive legal protections, such as data use agreements that take days, weeks, months, and you know, thousands, not tens of thousands of, of dollars of lawyer time to get in place. So, you know, this has solved some important problems, but it's also created some other problems associated with data sharing as we go, which is, like I said, where we come in. Speaking of cyber threats and breaches and things like that, were there any as you started working, sort of going from being a control systems engineer to kind of this side of the business, was there any you know seminal event in your mind in terms of a specific breach or something that you saw around data that said, we have to double down on this. That's what I'm going to commit my career to and duality to. Was there any, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, so there may not just be one, but I'm just curious. Not really. Uh, um, no one in particular. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, ever since I got into a defense industry post, post PhD, it seemed to have been a constant drumbeat if you knew what to listen for, you know, in terms of cyber threats and hacks and, and, and things like that. What really drove down, you know, kind of drove it for me is a lot of the earlier work I was doing when I was at my, my first job in, in defense industry was it was what's called the distributed computing group, which is the premise is how can one share compute resources? How can one push data from source to where it needs to go? in a timely and controlled manner. And I was exposed to this, you know, more from a DoD perspective, where there was a real mission need to, to push data to, to accomplish some really kind of tight objectives. And so, you know, cybersecurity was important, but also there was a drive for this. So it wasn't like the commercial enterprise applications where a CEO could easily say no to, to data sharing because you know, that's his job. It was more of a commander, a local commander, saying that they need to share the data to, to accomplish a mission. And this need to both, both manage cybersecurity while at the same time providing access to data really drove home to me the, the need for just a better way of balancing the, these two really kind of stark needs. And, you know, why, one of the reasons that, that you know, m myself and, and my community got really involved with these kinds of problems. Yeah, and I think even within the cybersecurity community, if you look at some of the companies that do post-breach analysis and so forth that we interact with as well, you know, there's a need to collaborate on data that is either classified or has some of the restrictions on it, but it's essential to them getting to root cause and then figuring out when you have such as these advanced persistent threats that can change all the time. So within the cybersecurity industry itself, that privacy is also required. It's not, they're not immune to it. There is actually one hack that really, really sticks in my mind. And that was the APT attacks, you know, that came, it was publicized in the uh, Mandiant report. I think Mandiant's changed their name a few times and, and whatnot. Like FireEye, I think they merged with FireEye. And I, I believe so. And, and when I was a professor for, for a few years, I always made my students read this report in, in kind of like the version one of it. Just because it was so interesting, not just you know the the breadth of how these APT style attacks were 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 hitting everywhere it seemed, but how how pervasive the the reach of these organizations were getting. Um, 
in, in terms of going deep and then exfiltrating data for what they were. And that was a really eye-opening thing that how, you know, no one protection is going to really help any one thing. There's no panaceas. And Mandian, to their credit, very deep credit, was, I see it as like one of the best pieces of technical literature coming out. And like, if there was a, like a Pulitzer Prize for technical writing, I would definitely give it to the the authors of the Mandian report, just because it was such an amazing, well-done and well-researched piece. Yeah, that was that was really something we've worked with. I think Mandian in the past again when they provide background, just because of our network and so forth. But I think that's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the technology, which is the fun stuff for me. So we talk about privacy enhancing technologies, and you mentioned earlier. I think one of the technologies, homomorphic encryption, HE or FHE, full homomorphic encryption. Can you explain a little bit what homomorphic encryption is, especially to an audience that? has heard encryption. We've all heard some form of encryption, but they, this may be you know, completely new to them. Yeah, gladly. So to kind of level set a bit, you know, we have this notion of encryption, which is you, know, you take some data and you perform some operation on it and, and you encrypt it. And you know, the notion of it is that it's mathematically really, really, really hard to take encrypted data, then exfiltrate the kind of source data that, that's encrypted unless you have a decryption key. And if you have a decryption key, the things are very, very, very easy. But when you, you have data that's encrypted, classically, that data has always been basically a blob. You know, you can't really do much of anything with it. It's a pile of bits, high entropy data, meaning it's, it's, it looks like just a bunch of noise is all it really is. Right. You know, there's been kind of these notions of what's called privacy technologies that would allow you know, some degree of computing on the data. And there was this huge breakthrough, you know, depending on, on whose timeline you ask, you know, around 2009, give or take a little bit, by the gentleman by the name of Craig Gentry, who was at, at the time a Stanford PhD student and, and IBM intern, of all things, who basically discovered a way of encrypting data, taking data, encrypting on it, so that once the data is encrypted, you could perform computations, operations on the data while it's encrypted, such that when you decrypt the, the result of that computation on the encrypted data, the result is the same as if you had performed the computation on the original data itself. And the analogy he likes to give is, you know, you take something that's really sensitive, you know, if you've seen these like, in, you know, chemistry labs, things like that, you put in something called a glove box, you can stick your hands in the glove box and through your gloves, manipulate the thing that's in there, and then take your hands out, open up the glove box, you have something that that's the result. I often think about it as kind of like more analogous to things like signal processing. You can take data, you know, encode it in a different way, run operations on it. And the notion of homework for crypto is basically homomorphism. You know, there's a mapping to operations you do on the ciphertext, the things that you do on, on data in the clear, and that one-to-one -one mapping. The notion of fully means that any computation that you can conceive of in the clear, in theory, you can map on to computations on encrypted data also. So arbitrary programs like training of neural nets, database queries, all the other kinds of things that you would want to do on really sensitive data, they get value from the data for what it is. Yeah. And I was going to say, when you talk about computations, are there limits to the types of computations or is it really especially with when you go to full homomorphic yes. encryption can you say it's unlimited or is it still confined to a specific set well this is depends on who you ask and this this gets this is going to get like you know <laughs> kind of a joke where like a, a priest a rabbi and a horse walk into a bar right you know the, the joke is sure. is a bit more of theoretically fully homomorphic encryption by definition means any arbitrary computation in some Turing complete sense, you know, theoretical sense. In practice, it's kind of like converting, you know, Java code, Python code, C code into something that would run on an FPGA. You know, in theory, you can convert any C code to run on an FPGA, but FPGA has a very, very different compute model. You know, Python code, for example, C code, calls what the theorists follow as a, as a RAM-based compute model, random access memory compute model. The FPGA looks more like evaluating circuits. 
you know, things that look like propositional logic, Boolean logic, and or XOR gates and things like that. So the, the practical pointy end of it, though, is that if you have a program that looks like very intense mathematical manipulation, you know, vector matrix vector algebra, you know, taking tab, tabs of data, columns of data, rows of data, you know, tables of data, and manipulating these large bulk data, those are the things that go really, really well on homomorphic encryption. And you can see how that would apply readily to things like piles of, of medical data, like genomic data, medical records, piles of, of financial transactional records, financial data, things like that. The kind of things that you can kind of put in a spreadsheet pretty easily. And that's where homomorphic crypto really shines. Yeah, and for and for the audience, FPGA is a field programmable gate array. It's basically a, an integrated circuit that can be programmed to a specific task, right? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So on that on the same topic, I've when it comes to homomorphic encryption, I've heard you say that you want to make it boring. Can you can you explain? I think I know what you mean, but I think it's an interesting statement to make about something that is so esoteric to a lot of people that to make it boring is an interesting right, no. statement. You know, one of the things I learned, and this is an early lesson I learned while I was doing defense work, is that, you know, as a, as a scientist, as a researcher, as an engineer, we, we get really excited about the, the new, the novel, the exciting, the, you know, the kind of the things that we have to kind of wrap our heads around to understand. The trouble is that when you get into operations and, and operational deployments, you know, if you have something that's new and, and is going to change someone's world, it takes training and retraining. And that, that, that's not free. That's not cheap. And sometimes you don't have the, the budget or time to train or retrain. The other challenge is that if you have this new way of doing computing, the more you can make it look like the way currently people work, the more likely it's going to get picked up and used because people will understand how to use it. And up to now, up until a few years ago, before we found a duality, homomorphic crypto was always seen as like this cool gee whiz, you know, science project that uh, you know a, a bunch of PhDs were kind of kicking the tires on, um, and, and they made work for some applications, but the applications were not quite like fitting into the way people do things with data. And you know what I learned as a defense contractor is you know the other side of it. Is that you know government and, and, and I'm sure banks and, and, and hospitals and, and any kind of large organizations no different from this. They have a lot of existing legacy systems, existing computers, existing software, and it, it's a losing proposition to try to get them to replace everything all at once. No one has a kind of budget to do that kind of stuff. And so the more that you can take a new technology like Homer for Crypto and plug it in. You know, underneath a graphical user interface that they already use, or on top of a database that they already have, and basically make it like a security layer as much as possible that's easy to install, where frankly the users don't even recognize that it's there. You know, that's what I mean by making homework for crypto as boring as possible, making it as usable as possible, making it so that people don't have to don't have to change anything, they don't have to buy new hardware, they don't have to do anything at all. Just take things that already exist, drop it in, and it just works. You know, boring, right? Right. And the, and the more ubiquitous you could make that, then the better for all again. So from that perspective, we talk about encryption. Most people, you know, we talk about encrypting data in transit, getting it from point A to point B, and then encrypting data, you know, at rest, wherever it's stored. With homomorphic encryption, it's you never have to decrypt it to be able to do what you need to do with it. So it, it, it occurs to me that when we talk about collaborating across international borders, for example, you have countries in this world, in, in Europe with GDPR and other things, that data sovereignty is very strong within that country. And yet we need to collaborate across the planet. I would think that this reconciles well, meaning homomorphic encryption, reconciles well with various compliance data sovereignty specific regulations because it, it, it extends for you not having to worry about what's in that data or where it's located, you can get the results that you need and, right. and move on, right? I mean, is that- I, I think that that captures it really well. I was in a conversation with a former four-star admiral earlier this morning, and, and he was telling me 
about how that one of the really kind of nice benefits of, of privacy technologies is that you know you don't have to worry about data sovereignty issues in the same way that you do right now with you know even looking you know for example just the United States some states have very strict privacy regulations like California other states have basically none and there's no real federal broadly federal mandate you know kind of for what it is uh, other than maybe a couple industry specific things that that go on and it makes it challenging about how do you enable interstate commerce despite these re- regulations and then you have the international issues of you know US companies interacting with european companies or even european subsidiaries or even U.S. companies going cross-border to Canada or to Mexico, which both have rather strong privacy regulations in comparison to the U.S. and U.S. states. And typically, there's a few countries or geographies that would drive the conversation for for what is a tough privacy regulation. The one that comes to mind for basically everyone is Germany and their interpretation of GDPR and how very strong the, the regulations that they impose for, for use of their citizens' data for, for all the right reasons. As a modern democracy, they should choose the rights of their citizens and, and the citizens that they you know vote their, their elected officials to, to protect their rights as, as citizens. And what we found is that different privacy technologies have different levels of acceptance in, in different regimes. Some of them, like the cryptographic-based methods, like fully homomorphic encryption, provide broad protections for privacy and are broadly considered to be compliant with even the strictest interpretations of GDPR, which is one of the reasons that as a business, we, we love focusing on you know, cross-border collaboration, whether it's for, for you know, things like medical research to fight cancer, whether it's for financial crime fighting to help fight you know, international financial crime, you know, and, um, money laundering and, and fraud and things like that, or, or just general collaboration uh, on data, for example, Companies wanting to share data about advertising to to create more effective advertising that that spans multiple geographies. The other thing that we hear all the time within cryptography and so forth is post quantum encryption. I mean, quantum computing in general being the devil coming for the encrypted data once it becomes democratized enough where everybody can have access to it, and then things like blind quantum encryption and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about when you look at homomorphic encryption, where does it fit into things like post-quantum encryption or blind quantum encryption or quantum computing in general? What would you place that in sort of all that terminology? I'll give you the kind of the punchline, bottom line up front, and and then kind of explain myself also, right? (laughs) So this is something I'm rather proud of, is that homomorphic encryption is what's called a post-quantum encryption technology meanings resistant to quantum computing attacks. And I'll tell you why that's important and why that's a big deal. There's an ongoing thread of technology development by many of the, the, the largest nations and, and, and even you know, corporate entities that are developing something called quantum computing. And what quantum computing basically is, is not silicon-based in co- computing like the RAM devices that we have, but use basic quantum physics principles as the underlying compute mechanism. And, you know, uh, this this gets very deep, very, very fast. But the basic concept behind it is that there are a pile of existing hard mathematical problems that are hard for standard computers, like laptops, you know, know, Google Cloud, AWS, and, and, you know, phones and things like that that are used as the basis of classical cryptography like RSA in particular, which is so very well known. And there's this one problem in particular called factoring. Like how do you, if you have a number that's the the product of two primes, you don't know what the primes are. Well, that property, that mathematical problem of factoring large product of two primes is the basis of modern classical cryptography like RSA. And RSA is used for public key transport. So, for example, when you go on Amazon and you go start shamping on the Amazon website, you'll see a little lock symbol in your browser bar. And what that browser bar basically means is that you got a cryptographic pipe between your computer and the Amazon servers. 
so that you can do things like browse and, and buy stuff and use your credit card number and all the other kinds of things like that. That pipe is connected by a form of cryptography called AES, and, and RSA is used to basically set up that session. So the concept being is that if you could break RSA, you could start to unwind and identify individuals, companies, most sensitive information, let alone credit card forms, medical files, and, and, and financial transaction records, and, and, and bank account numbers, and all these other kinds of things like that, let alone secure communications. And so quantum computings are believed to be able to do this relatively easily. They're not quite practical yet, but they're believed to be on the horizon. And the fear is that adversary nation states or criminal gangs can suck up now a lot of finan- encrypted financial transaction records, keep them in, in, in storage for the next five, 10 years until they have a quantum computing device, and then start breaking and, and start stealing information that they shouldn't. And so there's been a push, particularly driven by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, which is the crypto standardization body, national crypto standardization body for the United States, to move to post-quantum crypto standards. To, to predict against this attack, to basically to future-proof. NIST recently put out a, a new standard for what they're calling post-quantum crypto, which means the kinds of cryptography that are resistant and protected against quantum computing attacks, one family of which is lattice-based crypto. It so happens that fully homomorphic encryption is within this family of what's called lattice-based cryptography. And you know, so I'll bring it back to the punchline, Fully homomorphic encryption has this wonderful property associated with it, not such that it computes. You know, it's like you know, like the old telemercials would say, "Hey, wait, there's more." It also has these these post quantum properties associated with it, which our customers and financial services just absolutely love. That they can t- kill two birds with one stone of getting both you know encryption in use, encryption of data in use, while also having post quantum to future proof against future you know current to future attacks. Yeah, and and. You know, one of the things that I think in this conversation you point out is even if you make homomorphic encryption, technology like that, boring, ubiquitous, you still have data that's encrypted today sitting somewhere that if it's not quantum resistant, you would still need to go back and basically re-encrypt. Yeah. Right? I mean, just because you develop a technology doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've protected all the data that's sitting there that may not have been encrypted with whether it's lattice-based encryption or something that a quantum computer couldn't get to. And, and this is actually maybe a really good callback to what you know how how you started the conversation, Terry, where you're asking about like the seminal hacks over the past decades or so. You know, just because the data existed before and wasn't attacked before doesn't mean it shouldn't have been protected and, and the protection shouldn't have been increased. You know, as we learn more and more about these attacks and, and similar holes for these these post quantum crypto yeah. and, and quantum computing attacks, that just because they haven't existed for data that already exists doesn't mean we should go back and, and try to improve the security of, of already existing data going forward. I've heard you say that the technologies that you continue to develop and work with are some of the most mathematically intensive in real world technologies. Are you? Are you optimistic that the next generation of Kurt Roloff will continue to drive what you started with the same passion? And I, I hope so. The next generation of Kurt Roloff, I have a son. You know, let's see what he does in his you know, future years. But you know, I think you mean more <laughs> broadly than that. You know, what, what, this is actually one thing that that you know one of the reasons I do love the DARPA community so much, and I do love being part of this community. You know, DARPA's been around since you know, decades, you know, 50s, 60s, something like that. You know, they always talk about the legacy coming from, you know, response to Sputnik and what they call the Sputnik moment. And, and, you know, DARPA was, you know, involved with 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, first Gulf War, Cold War, you know, during the peace dividend and everything else. I've often been asked, and I often sometimes think about, you know, why why does DARPA work so well and, and why hasn't it been replicated in other places? you know, even other parts of the U.S. government or, you know, either other countries. And I think it's a few things that kind of happen related to this is that there's there's always new challenges that kind of come up. 
you know, we happen to have a set of really nice luxuries in, in the United States in particular around our, our really world-class education system for what it is. And I often think also about the culture of entrepreneurship that we have in the United States. And my experience about going from DARPA to being a co-founder is, you know, pitching to VCs, pitching to investors, pitching to early customers is no different than selling a vision to a DARPA PM. And, you know, this is one thing that, frankly, I, I think is kind of led the way with one of the reasons the way DARPA works and the way these kind of advanced technologies kind of go off in the world. It's almost like something coming out of a DARPA project is almost tailor-made for a deep tech company kind of as it goes. And you start to see some of these kind of come out yeah. too, as they are. So I think this culture of innovation, whether it's the culture of innovation coming out of the U.S. university system, whether it's the culture of innovation coming out of this whole DARPA defense contractor ecosystem, or the culture of innovation associated with entrepreneurship, you know, one thing that really ties the thread together is all of them are extremely risk-friendly. You know, grad schools, grad student is extremely, you know, friendly to technical risk and trying new and different things. DARPA is very, very friendly for, for trying different things. And entrepreneurship, you know, classically has always been very, very friendly to trying new and different things with a freedom of failure. And, you know, you really can't get the notion of pushing a new deep technology. You know, the, there are good sides to risks and there are downsides to risks. And softening the career impact of the downside of risk is a huge deal that I think makes these advanced technologies much more viable and part of a broader ecosystem, at least here in the United States, kind of for what it is. And, and I think I've been very fortunate that I've kind of hit the trifecta of, of you know, being a member of the university system, both as a grad student and otherwise a member of DARPA and, you know, being very fortunate to have very wonderful co-founders and wonderful investors to help us build the duality vision as a company. The other word that comes to mind for whether it's DARPA or I got earlier in my career, I got to hang out with some of the guys in New Jersey. I got to hang out with the guys at Bell Labs. I was working for AT&T at the time when Bell Labs was still the research arm. And I saw, I saw the audacity of, of basically saying, you know what, we're going to tackle this. And it may take us two years. It may take us 10 years. But I think the audacity is the other thing that I appreciate about the type of innovation that we do in this country. Let's talk real world use cases. I talked about the cancer research in the beginning of my opening. I know that's something that you talk about what we can do with genomic data and things like that. Are there other examples of use cases, real world use cases other than healthcare and maybe financial? Yeah. So there there's a use case in particular that that we we found that is really interesting to us. And this is to help basically help investigate financial crimes. So there's all kinds of statistics that you might see in the world about the pervasiveness of things like money laundering. And also money laundering, as, as you might be aware, is almost always in service of a, a, a preceding crime. You know, people need to money launder because, you know, they might, you know, sell drugs, they might want to engage in other kinds of fraudulent uh, activity associated with organized crime. You know, terror financing, any number of things might might you know cause money laundering, all of which are pretty bad. Let alone kind of let the bare bones kind of like you know vanilla tax evasion, which is bad in and of itself. You know, the notion of of financial crime is that if you want to go and prosecute crime, you know, stop bad people from doing bad things, you need to find out who they are, and you know, particularly law enforcement needs to collect evidence uh, of these kinds of things, which means they need to run investigations. You know, we live in modern democratic societies. We live in societies that respect the rule of law. We, we live in societies, thankfully, that respect the rights and privacy of the individual. You know, bare bones. You know, this is, this is what Western society is all about, which is great. And the nature of this is that law enforcement can't necessarily go to any arbitrary bank and say, give me all your data so I can find out people that are doing bad things. So we have a system in in U.S. and in, in other Western-style democracies, where law enforcement can go in front of a judge, get something called a warrant or a production order that they can use to investigate financial crimes you know, at banks and, and other places. And, and often, it's not just law enforcement, but banks also need to investigate because banks have a motive of stopping fraud and reducing losses. Typically, what happens 
is that when law enforcement wants to go and run one of these investigations, to get a warrant might take days, weeks, or months. And that because it goes through a court system, and typically the CISOs or, or compliance offices in, inside banks are tipped off of these things, and they are often organized crime insiders inside banks that might catch wind of the subject of investigation. And so by the time that, or, that law enforcement can go get a warrant or production order, organized crime has already exfiltrated all the money out of the accounts and basically disappeared, which is a, a bad thing. It's very, very hard to do these things. And even the regulations associated with reporting suspicious activity to, to law enforcement is so onerous that there's typically a 99% false positive rate with this, meaning that banks will tip off law enforcement in 99 times out of 100 It'll be a false report, not because the bank is doing anything bad, but just because the bar is so low for, for reporting things. And so this is a situation that's ripe for the need for, for innovation. And so what we've done is we've developed a set of technology, a set of products where an investigator, whether it's in a bank or, or law enforcement or whatever, can take a query that you want to run. You know, something as simple as how many accounts are there affiliated with, you know, this address? Take that query, encrypt it, send it over to the bank. The bank never decrypts that query, meaning the compliance, the CISO, whatever, never actually sees the subject of investigation, meaning organized crime can't get tipped off. They take that encrypted query, run over their data set, get an encrypted result on the order of, 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 of seconds or less, the current, current permutations, send that encrypted result back to law enforcement. And so this is what we call a cup of coffee time. The amount of time it takes to sip a cup of coffee and get a result, right? And this is as opposed to writing out a legal brief, getting a lawyer on staff, you know, getting a judge to stamp something. You can have results in, in seconds while also allowing the bank to protect the privacy of individuals. And you can basically tune the query so that it's really obvious something really fishy is going on if you're asking. Like, are there more than 20 accounts with a certain address? You know, really, really stuff that really shouldn't be going on unless there is some, some sort of weird behaviors. And so we have this product that allows what we call secure query capabilities, the ability to take it a query, encrypt it, and run it over. And, and we have it fairly generic. We can do things like, you know, straightforward SQL queries and things like that. But what we expose it to law enforcement is, is looking like tools that they already have, you know, like making it boring, like I say. And so this is a use case that we love about the ability to query external data. And you know, our application that I talked about was, like I said, fighting financial crime, but there's all kinds of other things like logistics issues, like a store wants to ask another store, like, hey, do you have this kind of stuff type of diaper? If you do, I'd like to buy a thousand pallets off of you. And, and they don't want to necessarily reveal what they're asking about, but if, the, if they can, they want to do the deal at the same time. And there's logistics applications and there's advertising applications, but you know, this this is a big thing that we're really focused on. Yeah. So in that scenario, if I understood you correctly, not only does the data that you're using for the analysis stay encrypted and hidden, but so does the query. Yeah, the bank never reveals that their data set to investigators, and investigators never reveal the subject of investigation. So it maintains the operational security and it maintains you know positive control of the data at all times. Right. Which I think is also the the book definition, if you will, when you talk about blind quantum computing. It's that the the neither the compute nor the data is known right. to the other right, right, right. the other party. The the other use case I'm curious about is with infrastructure technologies. You hear more and more. We've gone from things like cloud computing. Should we use it? Should we prioritize it? And so forth. Over the last decade, and certainly since COVID, I've heard this all the time, where a lot of companies went to a cloud first approach, um, and then. And then edge computing, you have these use cases, ultra low latency and so forth. A lot of data going through the edge, especially when I have the capabilities now to not only collect the data, but analyze it right where it sits with you know GPU infrastructure and so forth. How does homomorphic encryption play with that type of infrastructure? Because it would seem that it takes it to the next level for people that say, well, I don't want to use cloud or edge because there's some proprietary data and so forth. Or... I'm afraid to encrypt because it may slow down my processes. It seems like homomorphic encryption solves for that. One of the things that we, we do do a lot 
with our customers in, in government and financial services is to basically what we, we sometimes call breaking down data silos, where there are piles of data that exist in different places, whether it's on cloud, on multiple clouds, on-prem or, or other places, or, or like I said, or even edge as it is. To, to compute on data, typically you have to run some sort of joint computation on that data. You know, for example, taking information about you know, wearable medical devices to, to get you know, some notion of, of public health, for example, uh, could be one. Or, or getting information about pull data off of folks' vehicles to get real-time reporting of, for example, how icy the roads are. And, and generate you know much quicker, more accurate, micro accurate uh, traffic reports, for example. And you have all kinds of data that's flying around everywhere. It all comes with these very, very strict you know privacy and security regulations. And in some sense, you know you really shouldn't care where the data is stored. You shouldn't really care where the data is from, so much as you can run the analysis uh, on it. And, and a big thing that we we've been pushing lately is the ability to enable not just access delegation, but aggregation information. And so I'm going to break this down a little bit. One part, access delegation, is you know what we classically might call publish-subscribe or pub-sub of data, that I have a pile of data and it might be spread off of Azure and GCP and, and AWS and, and you know maybe some server I'm running in my basement or something like that. And I, I want to give access to this data to my medical doctor, or I want to give access to this data to my local public health agency. And so what I can do is, 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 is take data that I might encrypt over days, weeks, months, and I can then perform something called a re-encryption operation where the data is encrypted, sent to the, the cloud, wherever it is, and sits there for, for a while. And eventually later, when I want to give access to my, my doctor, I could send a command up to the server with something that looks like a public key take the data and transform it without decryption into a form on my doctor can then download and decrypt, you know, for, for what it is, which is great. You know, especially those of us in the US, you know, we move around a lot. We, we change our health providers a lot because we do move around a lot. And so there's a constant need of moving your data from doctor to doctor. And so what we can start to do is to, you know, have our doctors or have ourselves encrypt our data, have our doctors encrypt our data, and as we move around the country, basically have the data follow us so that every new doctor that we have is given access to historical medical records in a more automated fashion as we go, you know, wearable or otherwise. And we have other kind of similar applications where, you know, for example, I might want to take data that I have stored at multiple doctors, you know, my blood pressure readings from when I was a teenager, for example, or, or my x-rays from when I was in, in college and be able to basically pull that data, you know, up in some sort of central central repository, AWS or otherwise, compute on the data all while it's encrypted, and then, you know, generate results about, you know, hey, some sort of model of, you know, what kind of diet I should follow or something like this, kind of for what it is. And that's a little bit more of a fanciful example, but it's a way of kind of thinking about in, in, in like a public health kind of mindset of taking data from from all over and then aggregating and computing on it in a way that that spans the clouds kind of for what they are. Yeah. And to me, that's another example of your boring thesis of, of really extrapolating this down to the individual, especially when it comes to any type of healthcare data and what we see in the black markets with how much money is being paid for one medical record because of the amount of different fraud that you can do in that industry alone. It's, it's really, um, it's really epic. So on that note, when you look at the future, three to five years, I know some of this technology, I've heard you talk about things like RSA and so forth, have historically taken much longer to go from inception to becoming boring, to becoming applied. And it sounds like technologies like homomorphic encryption are ahead of that time frame. But what excites you and concerns you about where all of this is going? Kind of what's your panacea? over the, the next, as I said, three to five years of, of where all this goes, not the least of which is because of the work that you and Duality are doing. When, when I first heard about homomorphic encryption, I really quickly got connected with a DARPA PM who had a mandate to, to push this forward. And it was a gentleman by the name of Drew Dean. Drew Dean unfortunately passed just a few short months ago. 
he was super impactful. He's just a wonderful gentleman. I, I just really valued his friendship and his trust. And, you know, Drew sold the vision to DARPA of investing in Homework for Crypto back in 2010. And his vision was that if you look at major cryptography technologies, like look at RSA, depending on whether you ask the, the Americans or the British, it was invented sometime in the 70s. And it really became into widespread commercial public use, you know, roughly in the 90s when people started doing browser, you know, you know, secure browser operations and email and stuff like that. And if you look at, for example, elliptic curve cryptography, you know, that was discovered based on who you ask in the 80s. And it became really commercially popular with Blu-ray players, you know, in, in the mid-2000s. So look at those two examples, in roughly 20 years. And there's, you know, a number of other examples I can give about where encryption technologies are invented. And it takes almost exactly 20 years for them to become widely used publicly. And Drew's vision was that he, he saw Homo for Crypto for what it was, this essentially groundbreaking technology, new encryption technology, and the value it would have to, you know, Western-style democracies, the value it would have to U.S. government, well, the value it would have to, to U.S. commerce. And he didn't want to wait for the U.S. to wait 20 years. He wanted to wait much less than that. And he justified the DARPA's investment in this technology to accelerate and make it much sooner. And, you know, especially with, with, you know, Drew, my friend is passing and everything else that you say, I actually love hearing this because it was exactly his vision and it's coming. And, and it's absolutely great in, in the sense that, you know, here we are just barely 10 years after he, he made this investment and we have multiple startups, we have multiple open source libraries, we have an international standard and it's, it's really turning the corner into broad public use. And it's like, Hey, this is you know, what my friend tried to do. And, and, and here it is. Right. But anyway, to get back to your original question, you know, what do I see over three to five years? Uh, I see a few a few things kind of coming up on the horizon. One is, you know, in, in broader, you know, community of of, of privacy and open FHE, uh, homework for encryption, uh, I'm seeing more and more organizations get involved with hardware acceleration of the technology. And this was very common, for example, with RSA back early early days of RSA. RSA invented in the 70s, and there was a lot of work on developing specialized coprocessors just for RSA because it was such an important computation at the time. And, and we're seeing that with, with Homework for Crypto is that as it's growing in its use of the technology, this problem of, of wide use is that you, know, you need more and more and more and more. And it's a very specialized set of computations. And there's a push for the development of hardware accelerators for Homework for Encryption. And whether it's the DARPA Deprive program that we're involved with or any number of other startups, you know, there, there are several different threads, both in large industry and in government and in startups that are pushing this forward. The other side is that, you know, we see it pushing down into, you know, handheld devices like, like phones and things like that. You know, funny enough, the first real world application, when I say real world, you know, non-trivial demo of homework for encryption was deploying the technology on stock iPhone 5s's in 2013 to enable end-to-end encrypted voice over IP on commercial data networks. And what we're seeing is that yeah, that was a cool thing because we could end at, you know support multi-party VoIP, post-quantum security VoIP on commercial data networks, and we're starting to come full circle where we're starting to now run applications where the Android devices, you know, other things are operating as exactly as that edge computing devices to collect sensor data like wearable medical devices and things like that, you know, as we're kind of pushing down into more embedded type applications also for, for what it is. And the other side is, of course, you know, broader use and acceptance, for, for example, as you see the adoption of technologies is typically financial services take things on first. It's usually healthcare, you know, very, very, very close second, and then broader society from there um, as it kind of goes for, for broader commercial use. And, and we're seeing that with our traction in, in healthcare and starting to get into other broader commercial use too. And so I see the, the broader adoption as the real big thing over the next three years. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this is, first of all, th- thank you again for your time. This is absolutely fascinating. I think I will say that first, I'm, I'm happy to have individuals like yourself working on this because a lot of this is, you know, unless you're in the industry, whether you're working for a company like Lumen or in cryptography and so forth, it, it doesn't necessarily make the press 
until somebody does something with it. And I think it's fundamental to how we, just at a pure data perspective, for people to feel that there is there are individuals working on protecting their privacy, and they're doing it because they see a greater good in some of this information that today, like you said, gets behind stuck behind legal contracts and things like that, and doesn't get utilized. You know, I'm I'm excited to see what the future holds, not only for yourself and duality, but the industry, and then to see it, like you said, become boring. Love that term. To have it become boring and democratized, where almost every device, you know, we pick up or every service, you could say, you know, the caliber of encryption we have sitting back here got its genesis, you know, going back to Gentry in 2009 and fast forward with what you and others have done within the organization to enable it. So awesome conversation. Thank you. You know, I, I've been doing this for the past, what, 13 years now? So I could talk endlessly about this if you let me. So happy to talk more. I've enjoyed the conversation very much and always happy to kind of, you know, broaden out the understanding of the community into to the, the wider world. Thanks for joining another episode of Light Data Action. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can also follow us on Twitter at Light Data Action and for more Lumen news at Lumen Tech Co. As always, we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show. And I hope you'll join us next time for another conversation.